the Gospel of John, very end of chapter 13. We'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 31. We're continuing our study here. We moved into chapter 14 last week, but we managed to do it by entirely bypassing what Christ commands in verses 34 and 35 here of John 13. And so we come back to that now this morning. I felt it necessary for us to do it like we're doing it, because what, what is said there is so important and has so many implications for us that there was no way to go into that without breaking the, the flow of what Jesus is saying to his disciples there that we were seeing last week. And I knew that we would need to give it its own, its own attention. And so we turn here in particular this morning to verses 34 and 35. Maybe it would be a good start by laying out what we will find in as simple terms as we can. I think this is what we're going to see this morning. Our Lord Jesus Christ commands us to love one another just as he has loved us. And he says that this is going to be the defining attribute of his gathered community. That's quite a bit for him to say to us and for us to consider together this morning. Let's begin simply by hearing again what he says here. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read, as we hear from God's Word. I'll begin at verse 31. Referring to Judas, John continues in this way. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. How's that commandment going for you? You know that God uses the corporate gathering like we're in right now, the gathering around his word. You know that he uses it to grow us. It's always timely in whatever subject he would lay before our attention as we come to his word. It's just worth reminding yourselves of very deliberately that there is providence at work. <clears throat> There's providence at work in your life this morning. Your father intends for you to sit and be reminded of this preeminent command that Christ has given to his disciples. 
He is intending you to gather with his people in order to grow in just this way. He is bringing to your mind specific ways every Sunday that you need to hear him. And here this morning, he allows you to hear him commanding for you to think more deeply about what he has told you here, what he is telling us here. It is most certainly the case for me in this past week. I trust it is for every child of God in here that reflecting on this command is a cause for sanctification, for repentance, even for grieving over sin. One man wrote about this passage. He said, the command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Do you find that to be the case? And all of this simply means that, as is the case every time we come to God's word, we are sensing how important it is that we work to understand what he is telling us here, that we work to know how to apply it, that we know how to discern in our own lives if we are obeying him in this. Those are all the goals that lead us to the text this morning and lead us to what we're going to walk through in really three points this morning. This is how we'll progress. If you're taking notes, this is our outline. Three points. Number one, what is not new about this commandment? Number two, what is new about this commandment? And then third, in light of what we've learned about it then, what does obedience to this command look like in a Christian? What's not new about it? What is new about it? And therefore, what does obedience to it look like in the Christian life? First, number one, what's not new about this commandment? Someone simply hearing Christ's command here in verse 34 could scratch their head at the very question. How could there be something not new about this commandment? After all, Jesus just said, it is a new commandment that I give to you. So how could there be something not new about it? Uh, but there are some things said elsewhere in Scripture that make it plain that we need to do the kind of nuance that we're about to do. And really, even beside that, our simple knowledge of how words work make it plain that we would need to ask this question. Call something new isn't to say that it's new in every sense that it possibly could be. That's just not the way that words work. Think about, here's an example that I thought of. It's a common conversational situation. You hear someone say something like, um, guess what I did this week? <laughs> I bought a new car this week. And then maybe immediately to say something like, well, you know, not new, new, new for, new for me. I got a new car. Do, we understand the qualification he's making as he points that out, right? That this is just the way that words work. It's not new in every conceivable sense. So what is not new about this commandment that Jesus has just given? Well, certainly it's not new in the sense of being the first time God's people have ever been told to love. We've not been commanded to hate up until now, but now we've been commanded to love. 
We've not been commanded to treat others with apathy, and now we're being commanded to love. That's not what's new about this. It was very clear in the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Leviticus 19, 18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How often have we heard that phrase in Scripture? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, many times Jesus and Paul said that the whole law of Moses is summed up in what? In two things, right? Love of God and love of neighbor. It's not a new command to be commanded to love. There's another, there's another passage that we have to think of as well as we ask this question, what's not new about this commandment? And that is 1 John chapter 2. If you would turn over there for just a moment with me, 1 John 2. Notice what's said starting in verse 7. read verses 7 and 8. He says this, this same author, by the way, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, first of all, you can just notice that he's doing the kind of nuance that we're saying always needs to be done. Um, And at first glance, it can sound as if he's doing exactly what we have said that we're doing, but it's not exactly the same. The point he's making about the not newness isn't exactly the same as what we've said here. John is writing to a group of Christians in this letter. He's encouraging them in their sanctification Chapter 2, verse 1, is how he opens that. And he writes to his audience here about a commandment. And it is true that he's pointing to the same commandment that Jesus gives in our John 13 text. He is referring to a command to love one another. You can see it in the argument that he makes. So in my Bible, to help, I don't know when I did this, but when I have that open up, there are a couple of arrows on the pages there. I, I draw in my Bible and uh, do things like that. I've got arrows on those pages from verse 7 here uh, over to 1 John 2.24, which is just the next page over for me. This works out well for me because in my Bible I don't have to actually turn any page to do these two arrows. So an arrow over to 1 John 2.24, which says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So there's that, this is something you've heard from the beginning. And then one more over from that to 1 John 3.11, where he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, colon, that we should love one another. That he winds up telling you what is this commandment that he's, that he's describing here. So he's pointing to the same call that we hear in our text this morning from the Lord, the call to love one another. This is what he's holding these Christians to. But his, his point here about its not newness, is not exactly the point that we have made so far. What we have said is, it's not new in the sense that we've been commanded to love before, even back into the Old Testament. John's point in 1 John 2, 
when he says this is no new commandment is that in what he's writing to his audience, he knows this isn't the first time that they've heard this commandment. He knows this is a commandment, 1 John 2, 7, that you had from the beginning. And in the context of what, I mean, we just read some of them, but both 1 and 2 John, he uses that phrase a lot from the beginning. And he's obviously referring to their conversion, to the beginning of their Christian life. So he's saying to them in this old commandment sense. He's saying, I know you've heard this ever since you first heard and received the gospel. But despite that, I can still say to you, verse 8, there is a sense in which what this commandment is well described as a new commandment. So he gets into these same distinctions. Now we're going to use that to move into our second point this morning, asking the question then, what is new about this command that Jesus is giving? And in light of what John just said there in 1 John, as we start to think about the newness of this, you, you can imagine that 1 John is probably going to wind up being helpful in us recognizing what's new about this. And it, it certainly is going to be. Uh, and so in light of that, if you want to keep your finger in 1 John, you, you may. But let's go back for, uh, as we start here, back to John 13. What is meant when we hear from our Lord that this is a new commandment? And there are three things that ought to be noticed. I'm going to list these out, and then we will make use of them as we continue to think further this morning. But notice these, these new elements to what Christ is commanding. First, notice that the manner is new. He is not exactly commanding them to love in the same way that we were commanded to love in Leviticus 19, that the Old Testament commanded, the wording is different. We were commanded then to love, he said, as you love yourself. There is a God-given natural tendency to love ourselves, to seek our best. You could go on. And in that way, we were to love others. But in this particular command that Christ is giving, the manner isn't described that way. Notice, it's not love as you love yourselves. What is it that Christ tells us here? Love as I have loved you. He's describing the manner of this love in a way that is different, in a way that is new. And if you think about the fact that he's referring preeminently to what he's about to do on the cross that that is the supreme demonstration of his love, then of course this must be new in that way. Because up to now in history, there has never been this display of love that he's referring to. Before now, nobody could have been told to love as Christ has loved. He was just born 30 years ago, and it's to this display of love on the cross that he is referring. So that's one thing to notice, that the manner is described in a new way. Secondly, in terms of this newness, we need to notice that the object is new. Jesus says here, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's a specific command to love a specific group of people in a specific way. The call is to love those whom Christ has loved with the love that he has shown in fact, to become themselves instruments of Jesus' love to his people. 
And here that's shown very simply in the qualifier he gives to the disciples, that the object of this love is one another. John helps us here by being even more specific in that place where your finger is keeping its place in 1 John. So if you have done that, you can flip back over there now for a moment. Find 1 John 3. We'll start in verse 13. Let's work our way through a few verses here. 1 John 3.13. John writes to this group of believers, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Who, who are these brothers here? These are those whom the world hates. So, if John is writing to these brothers, who are those that the world hates, and then John winds up using the word we, who is we that John is going to be speaking of? It's John, and it's this, this group of believers to whom he is writing, those whom the world hates. Keep going, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he has laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I tried to emphasize in particular the, the, the parameters that John is directing this toward. There is particular commendation for a specific love exercised toward God's people. Paul, too, goes out of the way to make this point clear at the end of Galatians. In Galatians 6.10, he concludes that section by saying, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I think this is probably the right time to clarify something very important. Maybe you're already thinking about it in your minds. We need to clarify, don't we, that none of this suggests that Christians are being told to limit their love only to those within the church. Far be it. It's not the testimony of the Scriptures. This command that Christ gives to His followers, which is to characterize them while He is away, doesn't negate other commands, does it? It doesn't negate commands that we love even our enemies, Matthew 5, 44, or the command that we love our neighbor. Even generally, as we have been commanded in the Old Testament. And a command, by the way, that Christ affirmed at the end of the Good Samaritan parable. None of those things is negated by what we're saying here. None of them is done away with. It is true that we are individually lights in this world, in the street that we are located, in the cities that we're placed, in the workplaces that we are given to serve in. Individually, we're lights in this world, and we, and we shine in that way. But what we shine forth is nothing more than what we ourselves have received. We are to reflect the love of Christ. And thus be lights in the world. And actually, that image is helpful for us as we're thinking about this. That image of light in the world. 
uh, I think it's helpful in understanding even the particulars of what Christ is commanding of us here in his particular emphasis. What is, is there a certain passage in the Bible that comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, we are the light of the world? Doesn't that bring to your mind the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? This is where Jesus is teaching his disciples, right? And what is he teaching them? He is instructing them as to the ethic, the reality of life in the kingdom of God. And when he says there in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world, plural, he's not talking directly about the individual believer. He is talking about the individual believer, but the picture he's painting is one of a community of God's people. He refers to it as a city on a hilltop. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He says in that context, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, most certainly those good works, every one of them, are done by individuals when they are done. This is just how life happens in the world. But the picture that he's painting is that there is a place on earth that is not of the earth. It's a place where the kingdom of God has come to dwell among men. And when people on the outside look in at it, people living in darkness, they look at this community and they find this shining beacon of light, full of light. And it brings glory to God on earth. This is the image of a community of people in which the love of God is powerfully, and we could even say characteristically, being put on display. It's supposed to be something attractive, something that the world does not know or have. My friends, that's what the church is. It is a community on earth that has received a special love that Jesus has given to his own. This place is a trophy of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it's a trophy of the love of God on earth. God has willed that in the church, the world will see his love, not just received, but then poured out by its members on one another. There will be this place where this thing is seen. And this is what we're called to. This is a call to love with a particular goal in mind of demonstrating what a human community looks like that is full of God's love. It's not a selfish thing. It's not a thing that turns its back on those outside of the church. It's a thing of a particular new goal and, in, and emphasis. One man put it this way. He said, in reference to this command of Christ to love one another, he said, it is not so much that Christians are to love the world less as that they are to love one another more. Better put, and this is, I'm continuing the quote, better put, their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as the children of God, reflecting the mutual love of the Father and the Son and imitating the love that has been shown them. So I hope you can see this is not a thing that negates love to all of those around us, but it is a particular commanding of a love that's displayed within the community of the church. 
so that the uniqueness of the kingdom of God is what would be put on display. So what have we seen here so far in terms of newness? This is a new command in terms of the manner of it, love as Christ has loved you. It's new in terms of the object of it. Display this love to those upon whom Christ has placed his saving love. Thirdly, it is, it's new in terms of motivation. This is a community of people whose love is fueled by the present and ongoing awareness of a love that they have personally experienced. 1 John 3.16 says it best. He wrote there, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This, in the way that it is expressed and in the occasion of the motivation, this is new. Now again, let's qualify that. I don't mean that there was no shadow of this before Christ established his church. There has been. You could even think, for example, of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The sacrificial system instructed God's people in their need for a sacrifice, a covering, a cleansing that they could not manage for themselves. And there were, throughout that time, true believers who learned through those types and shadows of their need and who saw God to be a good, kind, generous God who would meet that need, a need that they could not meet. They kept coming back with the next sacrifice and they were filthy again the next week, unclean the next week. They sensed a need and they trusted that God would provide a sacrifice for them. And they lived in that faith. They believed God's promises. And they were saved by faith. But the love that is lived out in the church is a love that's fueled by a clear and present knowledge of exactly what Christ has done for us. We're now able to love by looking back. And they say that hindsight is 20 20. We, we know how God has displayed his love for us. We know exactly the name of the person. We know exactly what he did and where he did it. We've had this expounded for us by the apostles in the scriptures. We know these things. What's the result of the knowledge that we have of the love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ and the manner of it? Well, it's things like, just to give a couple of examples, selflessness going from being something entirely counterintuitive to us to being something that might be desirable by the knowledge of Christ's utterly selfless act on my behalf. I see what he has done for me at great cost to himself, and it actually makes me desire to love in a self-sacrificing way that I might image my Savior. It looks like humility, something like humility, becoming actually attractive and desirable. It's been noted that uh, even as far back as you go, there have always been, you think of the Greek philosophers, there have been lists of vices and virtues that just humankind should instinctively reject and pursue. And there's obviously some overlap there because we're made in God's image and so there's a sense in some ways of rightness. Humility was never found 
on virtue lists in the ancient world? Where did we come by this sense now that there's something honorable, desirable about a humble life? We've seen it in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's become actually attractive with our knowledge of how low my Savior was willing to stoop for my sake. What motivates the love in Christ's kingdom is the fact that we have past tense had displayed for us that supreme demonstration of God's love. He said here, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It is new in these ways, in terms of uh, that it's depicted to us of manner and object and motivation. And I find all three of those realities in a statement that I read this week by Leon Morris. He said this in his commentary on John. He said, the new thing about this new commandment appears to be the mutual affection that Christians have for one another on account of Christ's great love for them. A community has been created on the basis of Jesus' work for us. And there is a new relationship within that community. It is to this new thing that Christ commands us. He says to us, let my act of love for you motivate you to specially love the people that I have specially loved in salvation. Now all of this needs to grow legs on it. It should be increasing in our minds the sense of urgency to the question, what does this look like for us then? What exactly is it supposed to look like? What is Jesus demanding of the 11 here? And remember that we're hearing him charge them in view of his imminent departure, right? Verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. This is the marching order for the newly gathering messianic community. We have to remember all of that because what that means for you and for me is that he's not just charging them. He's charging all of us. He's charging them for the context in which we have lived our entire lives and will. The time in which we await the return of our Lord eagerly. So what is Christ demanding of us? when he gives this command. Now I wonder, is there a wrong way to go about answering that question? Or so long as we ask the good question, are we good? We answer it any way we want. We ask the right question so we're on safe ground. I think we all, I hope we all understand how wrong that would be. We are not content to just make up a definition that seems appropriate. And what I want to suggest and what we're going to try to do now is to lean into the qualifying statement that Jesus gave them when he commanded this. Do you see it in verse 34, John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another in any way that feels right to you, love one another. Is that what he said? What is the qualifying commandment that he gave to them? It was this, even as I have loved you. 
This is a comparative statement, and you need to know that we're reading it correctly when we read it like that. Even as I have loved you, or just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. The word is kathos. This is a comparison. To the degree that, insofar as, Jesus is demanding that there be a comparison between the way he has loved us and the way we will obey his command to love each other. So then we can answer the question, what will our obedience look like to this? By looking at how he has loved us. Do you see how we can answer the question by simply looking to him? How he has loved his people, the church. And this is how we'll finish our time this morning. Uh, there will be four statements. One, the first is general, based on what we've already seen this morning, and then three specific statements, each one stemming from a particular place where Christ's love for us is described. I hope that this will be helpful. I think, I think this directs us in the right way. The first statement is a general one, and that is simply to say, He has loved us in a special way that goes beyond the more general love for the rest of the world. And we've already talked about that this morning. But what we're drawing from it is this. This love that our Lord has given to us, that we are to mirror, has gone beyond a general toleration, hasn't it? It's gone beyond a mere politeness. What we've experienced from Christ is deliberate action for a purpose. That's what we've experienced when we experienced his special love for us in salvation. A deliberate action for a purpose. And what that means then in this context is that this love that he is calling us to must be a deliberate thing. It must be love that goes beyond categories of toleration because it is about something deeper than that. That's very general. Now let's flesh that out in three specifics. Specific number one, and I'll take this from the same chapter, John 13, We've seen the example of the foot washing, haven't we, here recently? What have we seen in his love for the church? In that example, we have seen a humble love that gave without regard for the worthiness of the recipient. It's interesting, to, even the way that that story is told for us of how it happened. He said himself about his exemplary act of love to his disciples as he washed their feet. He said to Peter, you remember, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. He loved him in this way. His love expressed itself in this particular, even when the recipient was beneath the understanding of it. His love went out toward a people who understood less, who had a less accurate big picture, whose priorities were lesser than his priorities. And he actually knew it with certainty. He knows all things. He knew that they were here, and he was here, and he knew it with inerrancy. Listen, if that true and inerrant recognition of superiority did not keep Jesus from humble, active love, what must that mean for our perceived superiority over those among us in the body? How often does this happen? That, that our interactions with others, we get to know each other, we're live, doing life together, and we are led to suspect 
sometimes with a high degree of certainty in our own minds, that we are doing better, we are thinking better, we are seeing more clearly. And how often, here's the real question, how often does that lead us to withdraw from action and involvement in the lives of those people? It's going to be inevitable. We are not all the same. And inevitably, those differences will create in us a suspicion of misstep or deficiency or ignorance. And here's what we learn from the example of our Lord's love. Where that leads us to pull away from one another, we are failing to love as Christ has loved us. But... When we instead choose deliberately to sidestep those perceptions that we have, true or false, when we choose deliberately to sidestep those perceptions and through them, despite them, to actively reach out in love, what we're doing is we're displaying a specific of exactly how Christ has loved us. That is what he did towards us. And he did it when he knew that of our deficiency. So that's one specific that we see even in this chapter, that Christ's love demands from us a humble commitment to engagement without regard for the worthiness of the other. Specific number two, what will characterize our love if it is modeled after Christ's love for us? It will be, and we can see this one from John 15, it will be, Well, we could put it this way. It will model our Lord in that Christ's love was based upon conscious submission to the Father's Lordship. This is very important for us, especially in the the times in which we live, where questions of love, definitions of love abound. There are guardrails that are put on our love as we follow Christ's example in chapter 15. Look over there. There is... Far too much for us to deal with in this passage this morning. We will have our work cut out for us when we get to John 15 in our study here, that's for sure. But this morning, we just need to notice an inextricable link that's being made here between submission to authority and a display of true godly love that Christ is describing. Start with verse 12, John 15, 12. He says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. His special love, his saving love is described here in terms of of being given to his friends. Do you see that? His friends. And what does verse 14 do here? It connects the experience of that love, that special love, to the reality of obedience. Now, without question, here's one of those significant places that we're going to spend much time thinking about when we get there. Uh, What we're seeing and what Jesus is drawing is a, a relationship there between this special love and obedience. You need to understand this morning, not every relationship is a causal relationship. 
Just because there's a relationship doesn't mean that it's causal. He's not saying that our obedience is earning his love or is the cause of his loving us. What he's, say, what he's pointing out is that the two belong together. And what he says there is really just a natural outflow of what he said in verses 9 and 10, right above it. Look at verse 9. Jesus talks about himself here. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Listen to this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And it's verse 10 there that I want us to fixate on here because Jesus tells us that his example, you know, the very one that we're figuring out how to follow here in his command to us, his example was that of obedience to the Father. His love for us was based upon, it took all the shape it took, based upon obedience and submission to his Father. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This love is utterly tied to obedience to Christ's commands, which means for us this morning that my interactions with others, because that's the context here, right? We're trying to ask the question, how does it look for me to love my church family as Christ has loved us? This all tells us that my interactions with others cannot qualify as love if they are not based upon a pre-conviction that Jesus is the Lord of us all. We are emulating his love, the love with which we have been loved. And he tells us here that his love was self-consciously given in submission to authority. That's what drove the way that it looked. That doesn't mean that for the God-man Jesus Christ that his his love of us was not a joyful thing to him. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that his love for us was not driven by, based utterly upon, some sense of personal emotion or emotions of any kind. And so it must not be for us. We cannot measure or define love in terms we make up for ourselves. If we are loving with Christ's love, our love is defined from the outset according to the revelation and command of Christ. And if we love like that, my friends, if we love like that, we are loving as Jesus loved us. We are following his example. So we've seen specifically Christ-like love is given without regard to the worthiness of the recipient. That's important. It's based upon conscious submission to Christ's lordship. Third and finally this morning, the final specific we'll draw We'll come again from 1 John. So you get to go back over there. 1 John chapter 3. The final specific that we see this morning is that this love, if it's to be modeled after Christ's love, will involve tangible self-sacrifice. He says in 1 John 3, 16, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's just the readiness to self-sacrifice that we've seen everywhere else already this morning. But here, I want you to notice what he says right after that. It's the first thing he does by way of application of this command to lay down our lives for one another. Do you notice how immediately tangible he gets? 
in how he applies this. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us, love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I hope you can see how this is so helpful to us in our task this morning of coming to understand how it will look for me to obey the command that Christ has given. It helps us in terms of everything that we've seen. We've seen the self-sacrificial nature. We've seen the guardrails of submission to God's commands. But what he tells us here is that the realm in which this is going to most often be lived out is the plain old physical realm. We want to obey Christ's call to love as we have been loved by him. It will show up in places like young moms making a meal for someone in need, even when life is busy. It will show up in the years of retirement, being spent in spontaneous service that wasn't anticipated or planned for. It will show up with th things that have dollars and cents behind them. I mean, he's emphasizing here physical provision for physical situations. Mothers will teach daughters that Jesus' love emerges through intentional, industrious use of time to bless others, to bear other people's burdens, to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Fathers will teach sons to love with Jesus' love by getting in the car and getting sweaty and tired in the pouring out for someone else's needs, being there for each other in flesh. It's fascinating to me that this is how he applies this, by getting so physical. Now, sure enough, there are such things as spiritual needs and spiritual care that we give to each other as well. And we understand how shallow it would be if all we did was give some food or give some money. That's not what we're talking about here. But there's a particular danger that John is protecting us from in what he says here. It's a big word, and it's such a big word that it starts with a silent G. You know you're in trouble if you're thinking about a word that starts with a silent G. Nothing good comes from that. It's the word Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient heresy. The earliest church was dealing with, it's a heresy and a danger that plagues us today. Among other things, it argues that in a very spiritual sounding way, that the physical world is just not that significant. What really matters is the spiritual. And so downplay the physical. Good done in the physical world is maybe a bit of a waste of time. My friends, that is not the picture that God's word gives us of the physical realm, of your physical needs and struggles and lives. What the Bible says in response to that is that we are physical beings. We are composite, right? Physical, spiritual components to our existence. But the physical realm is the theater in which we're displaying all of these things. You see what this does for us. You see how freeing this is for us to know how we might share the love of Christ with those around us. Do you want to love Christ? Do you want to abide in his love by keeping his commands? That spaghetti that you made for that suffering part of your church family really did fit the bill. 
We can develop a kind of false spirituality, ironically, that downplays the ways the Holy Spirit is actually moving us to love each other. And here comes John to tell us that loving with Christ's love is often, maybe predominantly, in terms of, of our lives, a very tangible, livable choice that can be made. And if we're modeling after Christ, then when we get into seasons in life where that would involve self-sacrifice, we know we're only doing what our Lord has done for us. Love that is tangible, that involves the physical lives and experiences of the people around us. Love that is driven by conscious submission to Christ. Love that is not impeded by a perceived unworthiness of the recipient. He has told them, and he has told us, what to be busy with while he is away. It is not the only thing that he's going to say in that regard, is it? But there's a reason that we call what we find here the basic stipulation of the new covenant. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are, we are so humbled and grateful for your persistent pursuit of your people for Christ-likeness. We thank you for your perfect wisdom, your perfect timing. We thank you for your patience with us. We do not come before your throne and have the weight of everything poured onto our shoulders, crushing us. You are merciful to us. You know our frame. You know that we are but dust. You bear with our weaknesses throughout our lives, but you do it in a way that is diligently working by your Spirit to soften us, to make us aware of our sins, to give us a heart to mortify those things so that we might look like your Son. And we thank you this morning for this that you've given us. Thank you for this reminder that you have told us that the world will know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for one another. God, I pray that you would use, that you would use your word in our lives to just this effect, Lord, soften us where we have been hardened. Give us a desire for forgiveness, for repentance, for reconciliation, as those things are needed within our body. There is no body, no local body on earth in which those things are not needed. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless and protect and sanctify us here this morning in just those ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have been considering this morning has been Christ's unique love for his people. And it fits well this morning with our sharing.